You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible and talk about it. And uh, we have some people who listen to it, which is cool. So thank you for being here. Uh, to appreciate that. Yeah. Don't know where else to go from there, but um, that's what we got. So how are you doing? Uh, same old, same old. Hanging in there. It, except for, you know, I woke up and there was yucky white stuff on my yard yesterday. So I'm not a happy camper on so many counts. <laughs> yeah. Just leave yeah. the winter behind. Yeah, we had a little snow flurry here, but it wasn't enough to stick. It was, it was kind of funny. We had a had some people who were visiting from uh, 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 one one of the families had another family member visiting from Austin, and they heard they're like, "There's snow on the way. Are we going to be okay?" And we're like, "It's not going to be enough to affect it. Don't worry." No, yeah, I'm convinced snow is something that occurred with the fall. Okay, this is whenever the earth became corrupted by man's sinful nature and before this there was no such thing as snow i I, i'm one of those people so (laughs) fair enough snow mosquitoes yeah no i don't don't care for it at all so i i'm very opinionated about snow thomas kincaid paintings and maple syrup so you know short list but my opinions are loud and strong so fair enough so Uh, anyway do what 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 were you going to say? <laughs> I might be a little sleep deprived, so. You know. <laughs> There's also strong opinions about biblical things um, that you have going on. So yeah. I guess we should yeah, get back yeah. to that. So we, last week we <laughs> talked about the large bull. The bronze large or bronze brazen bull. sea. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, are we? I guess we're still continuing with the temple. Is we're that what we're doing? We're still on. Actually, we're still on the Bronze Sea because I didn't get through all my stuff. And the problem that I'm having is now that I've got my study set up, I've got like access to my books and I've got access to the internet. And this means I can go down so many rabbit trails. And so we are still on this. Uh, we we're going to go some fun places with it. I think. Um, but just a little quick recap in case anybody slept since the last episode is we were talking about the um, creation myths of the surrounding communities, the Samaria and the Akkadian and all of that, and how they all centered on this idea that the sea or Yom had to be um, defeated, it's often called Tiamat too. And so the the idea that the sea had to be overcome because it's a symbol of chaos and We have to remember in these cultures, excuse me, even in uh, Judaism, the idea of creation from nothing was kind of a foreign concept. Uh, John Walton does a really great idea talking about creation being assigning function, creating purpose, and that's how creation was defined. It wasn't so much in let's make something from nothing, although I'm not denying that, and I don't think Walton is either. Uh, that God, you know, created all things, and without him there would be nothing, that, that's obviously part of our Christian theology. However, creation was not complete, and it wasn't actual, actually actualized until there was this 
this purpose and function that came about with creation itself, with the, the thing that was being created. Mm-hmm. And so this this idea that the sea was chaos, it had no function other than destruction. It was dangerous. It was something that could kill you. It was something that, you know, it hid the 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 scary monsters and the sea demons and the the beasts that that could really cause humanity to be destroyed. So that was very much a part of that culture. And the and the, the Hebrew people would have been exposed to that. Mm-hmm. That's not something that was foreign to them. And this idea might be foreign to us because we do come from a culture that has been so influenced by Christian and biblical theology. The idea of the sea being chaotic or being the symbol of death and destruction, again, new to us, not new to the people of the Bible. Well, and, and also, I mean, it, it's, it's new to a lot of American Christians, I think, um, mm-hmm. because, and I'm going to be a little grumpy here, but, but I, I'm, the more <laughs> I'm learning, the more that I'm, I'm finding out that uh, a large number of things that we were taught in Sunday school were not derived necessarily from the Bible. They were derived from a, a reaction to uh, science mm-hmm. and a reaction to atheism. And yes. they were not, and again, like, and I wish I could remember who said it. I tried Googling it to find it, but that, that quote of the opposite of heresy is heresy. Um, you know, we're, we're inter- if we're interpreting our Bible because we're reacting against something, then we're probably interpreting it the wrong way. Right. And, we're going to fall into that other side of the ditch. Yeah. Yeah, and it's and it's like the, you know, <laughs> like you and I were talking about uh, one time, uh, you know, thinking outside the box. Uh, you know, that's everyone wants. To, oh, thinking outside the box. Well, just because an idea is in the box doesn't mean it's a bad idea, <laughs> right? Um, but if you do things out just to be outside the box, then you know maybe uh, maybe re uh, <laughs> relook at how you're doing things. Um, but well, but and that's the, that's I, I actually the before the what before the the Rob Bell controversy, I had actually seen I'd seen him in person, and um, one of the things he said that really stuck with me because it it is true. He said if you're trying to think outside the box because there's a box, the box is still calling the shots, and yeah. so yeah. you know I'm like he's actually right. So why can't we just pursue things because they're you know right, true, good they work. Why do we have to react against some kind of definition that's been put out there that may or may not be true? Mm-hmm. I mean, and we need to look at, you know, this is a great example. If we look at creation ex nihilo or creation from nothing, and which we were all taught, and I believe that is accurate, if we're clinging, clinging to it to the point that we cannot engage with other biblical ideas and other cultural ideas, we, we're, we're missing out on the fullness of what the Bible has to offer us. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times when we're talking about biblical theology, it's not an either or, it's a both and. And we need to be able to think of the fact that we serve a God who is infinite. And that doesn't just mean that he exists forever. That means that there's depth and richness within his being mm-hmm. that's presented to us within the Bible. And so it can't be a two-dimensional depiction of reality because that's not where God exists. Right. And so we need to be very careful not to flatten out God, not to flatten out his word. Um, I actually saw something on the internet the other day, and it said, you know, paper has six sides. 
but you don't think about it until you start to stack it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, that's a really good analogy for how we think of the Bible. We think of a front and the back, a black and a white, you know, those two dimensions. But when you start to stack up the levels and the layers of biblical teaching, that's when you begin to realize there really are six sides. There's more to it than just these two sides. And actually, if you want to get really into some crazy uh, uh, metaphors and examples from quantum physics, then paper has six sides. And that six, uh, seven side, sorry, the seventh side is that, that point that you cannot perceive with your senses. That's where uh, the spirit comes in. And so it, there's actually a whole teaching. I d- stumbled across a teacher completely separate from the paper analogy who brought that up. And I'm like, okay, now you're messing with my brain. Uh, because, it, you know, and I'm not saying that we can quantify these in any kind of scientific sense. But as far as metaphor and analogy, I think it's helpful to realize there are aspects of creation, biblical theology, even ourselves, that we cannot always define, weigh, or measure. Mm-hmm. And well, so we've got to be okay with that. Well, well, That's where faith comes in. Yeah, and, and there's, there's the, uh, the idea. And again, I, I don't know why. I, I find it funny. I mean, it's not funny. It's just frustrating. I, I, it's the <laughs> accurate word. That we oftentimes want to, um, you know, Paul talks about the natural revelation in, in the book of Romans. And mm-hmm. oftentimes we point to that and we think, oh, the natural revelation, nature way out there, the mountains, the, you know, all these things. But mm-hmm. we don't, we oftentimes overlook the natural revelation as in we're made in the image of God. Right. And are we broken and sinful and marred and whatever? Damaged. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but think about how complex we are as a natural revelation to talk about how complex God is. And, right. And if, you know, so we, we have to look at the fact that we're part of the natural revelation. <laughs> we're, we're not exempt from it. We're, right. We, Humans have this thing where we we try to exempt ourselves from every other uh, aspect of nature and creation, and you know, and yes. I, I know I'm gonna make somebody mad here, but you know, it's <laughs> it, it, look at look look. I mean, if, if you're gonna be, and again, you know, this is a little bit of like presuppositional style apologetics, but it's this idea that if we try to exempt ourselves from nature, we're, we're we're messing it all up because especially if you're looking at it from a worldview that does not include God, and then you want to try to add some kind of moral imperative to something like eating meat. Right. It, it's like you don't really have a leg to stand on because if you don't have a, a worldview where we're made in a different level uh, of accountability than the animals, you know, if you don't have deity, if you don't have spirituality, we're just animals. There's, there's, there's more, it's morally zero. There's, there's, Mm-hmm. For us to eat meat or not, every other creature on the, well, not every other creature, but there's several carnivores in the world. <laughs> there's right. several omnivores in the world. And there's even plants that eat insects, you know, so they're, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but, but the whole idea that there's some kind of moral imperative on that is because you've exempted yourself and the rest of humanity from your actual worldview. Uh, so. That's neither here. No, I I just 
I don't remember where well, we started on this. Oh, the natural <laughs> revelation of 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 man being part of natural revelation, how we can think of God and his complexity is 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 greater than than what we give him credit for. And so and that's one of the things I that think that frustrates me. And I think we I kind of mentioned this the other day about like, you know, how science all the sciences are about understanding the world God made for us. And mm-hmm. that you doing that, we can better, you know, take dominion over it and rule it better. And then um the same time we have so many Christians rejecting a lot of scientific data and specifically um psychology and yeah and the thing is what i don't know why i'm going this far but you know uh, so <laughs> because of, it's because of the natural revelation of man how complex our minds are we're studying our minds and we get a better understanding of god if we can understand what a healthy mind looks like and oftentimes what of course you know most of these uh hardcore fundamentalist anti-psychology people are railing against is not actual psychology. They're railing against the TV caricature of mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, they're they're arguing with you know Frazier. Um, they're right. not <laughs> not a real psychiatrist who, <laughs> you know. Uh, well, and we I think if we show, take science, if we take science in anything that can be scientifically demonstrated, then it becomes a stepping stone. And if we go, this, this is so cool. This is so amazing. This is what science shows us. God's got to be so much bigger. Mm-hmm. It, and I think the problem is a lot of times people will go, okay, here's what science proven. This is what, how God is. And mm-hmm. that, that's not the point. The point is always looking larger. It's always zooming out. And if that's where you start at and your starting place is incredible, then how much more? And I think that's the question we always need to come back to. When we're dealing with anything, whether we're looking at biblical revelation, a scientific um, idea, uh, natural revelation, the question should be, if this is so great, how much more is God? Yeah. And, and so if we can do that, then our sense of awe and wonder increases. Yeah. The minute we think we can define God, whether we're, we're talking about, you know, a, a scientific idea or some kind of natural revelation, then we think we can define him according to that. Then we're making God too small. Yeah, yeah. And so, and and is and is and as complex as we are as finite beings. I mean, how mm-hmm. much more complex must God be? And that's exactly. that's what frustrates me, especially when people get married to system certain systematic theologies. Is it tries they in order to try to make God greater than he reveals they try to make god greater than he reveals himself to be but they don't you know it's like We're, it's like taking a crayon and drawing a mustache on a on you know <laughs> the david statue and saying look i made him more manly you know it it doesn't help it, it's it's just absurd the the ways that we try to to make god make god better and it really it's like no you're just making god more like you <laughs> well and not and i'm like just letting god make you more like him anyway I, I'm, I'm just highly suspicious of any systematic that says they've got all the answers I, right any of them right. And, right. and so i think that's the reason why we have so many is because this systematic might have this answer but it doesn't necessarily answer this question and so you've got to bring all the pieces together and you still just catch a glimmer of what we're mm-hmm. talking about 
And I, and I think we have to be okay with that as Christians. And I think that's one of the things that hurts people is they want a lot, all the answers right now. Mm-hmm. And we, we aren't going to get them right now. I don't know what the process is and how or if and when we're going to get them. But that's why faith comes in. Does that mean we should stop looking for answers? Absolutely not. Because every answer we do get should be that springboard into that how much more. Right. So, yeah. Well, and yeah. And so many, so many uh, systematic theologies, they, they, uh, they try to answer all the questions by looking at, uh, by destroying the question, saying, well, no, that's not even a possibility. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> So. If you can think of it, it's a possibility. Um, does, is it the correct assumption or the right possibility? Maybe not, but it, it is a possibility, and I think we need to be honest. And you know, and I it's think a that's question. One of the reasons... and it's a question worth pondering. Exactly, exactly. When I, I think that's the reason why I have so many friends of different uh, religious backgrounds is because I can at least look and see what the value of the question is. Mm-hmm. And the, even if I don't agree with the question, I find that. I learn a lot if I will just stop and go, okay, this is a valid question. Now pr- approach it as someone who doesn't have the answers. Approach it mm-hmm, as someone mm-hmm. who doesn't have an idea of how to answer this. What does this question you know, cause me to have to confront and feel? And, and then I can have some empathy and I can ha- maybe help them find some answers, but not coming at it as a know-it-all, which I know I can do. I, I'm very good at that. So because I know that, now I have to actively fight against that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, I, I get that. You know. <laughs> so, but speaking of knowing it all, I know quite a bit about um, this, this whole idea of, of uh, chaos and the sea, and we're going to talk about that. Uh, again, Should we start more. the show? Do what? So should we start the show? I don't know. <laughs> uh, this is what happens when we don't get to talk throughout the week because you've had like a crazy busy week. So we've got all this stuff floating around our head that we normally don't release into the public. <laughs> yeah, so... I, I, I'm sorry. I, there, there have, I, yeah, uh, part of that is lack of sleep. Part, part of it is there's, there's been uh, some very vocal uh, factions about lots of things this week. And you spent too much time on Facebook again. I, I spent yeah, and well, Twitter okay. too much, too much time on the Twitters. Um. Okay, so we were talking about Baal and Yom, and how Baal had to defeat Yom or the sea. He has to do it twice before he can rest in his uh, his palace that he's created with the permission of El. And uh, the idea of creating a palace or a temple, the, the ideas are kind of interchangeable when we're talking about ancient Near Eastern gods, um, is this is a place where the gods can rest. This mm-hmm. is a place where they don't have to fight. And so if you'll remember, I t- mentioned Baal's first house didn't have any windows because he was afraid that Yom was going to rise up again and flood him out, where you know Solomon's temple, we have these great account of windows. And then... Um, it's after he wins after this conflict twice. He has to do it twice. He has to defeat divine, uh, Yom that many times. He he's able to finally rest. And John, um, sorry, uh, Walton, um, John Walton, he actually makes a point in his book. Um, hold on, I've got the title here because I forget to write it down. Ancient Near Eastern Thought and the Old Testament. He makes a point to note that divine rest only happens after winning a conflict. Mm-hmm. And he has a whole chapter in there. Now, in Genesis' account, we don't have God fighting the sea. There's no conflict in Genesis. I'm not saying there's no conflict anywhere else in the Bible. 
we do have mentions of that in other places, but it's not in the Genesis account. And we'll talk about some of those places as we move on. But in the um, Genesis account, God just tells things to happen and they happen. They happen. Matter of fact, when it first mentions the waters in verse two, God is hovering or brooding over the waters. The idea of a bird on its nest over its eggs. It's this idea of care and nurturing. It's not conflict. It's the exact opposite mm-hmm. of what we find in all the other cultures. And the imagery for this word is presented very well in Deuteronomy 32, 11. It says, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and flutters is how the ESV has it. It's the same word, um, but usually they have it brooding. And it says, spreading out its wings and catching and bearing, on and bearing them on its pinions. So um, this idea of, of, of actually bringing out the good things from this primordial waters to, to benefit all of creation because it's been nurtured and cared for, it is a really big reversal of what the rest of the cultures surrounding Israel would have expected. Mm-hmm. And so where we find the, 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 the struggles are in Psalms, in Job, uh, where else? Oh, Isaiah. Um, I'm going to read it, the passage in Psalms. It's this Psalms um, 74. And the whole passage is 12 through 17. I'm not going to read that. I'm just going to read verses 12 and 13. But if you want to look it up, you know, by all means. It says, yet God, my king, is from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. He divided the sea, or Yom. By your might, you broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. So the words here, if we go back and we compare them to the Ugaritic and get to looking for cognates and similar themes and ideas, they're everywhere. You cannot deny the connection of this passage here in Psalms with the Ugaritic um, text. Uh, and I'm in full agreement with Heiser. This is not something that we need to be afraid of. This is where we see the writers of the Bible taking known themes, known stories, known theological ideas, and saying, this is how we turn them on their heads to show that the God of Israel's greater. He's bigger. He's more powerful. He's he, exceeds anything we expect in a God because mm-hmm. God does not fear the sea. He doesn't have to keep it out of his house. He actually makes the sea serve him. The sea serves a purpose. It is put to work. And when we look at the Old Testament, we look especially in the Torah, we find that the sea is something that God uses not just to bring about good things. It actually is an instrument of wrath. Uh, we find that in the flood, obviously, with Noah and the ark. We also find it in crossing the Red Sea, where the sea is divided. The children of Israel come through, and then Pharaoh is destroyed by the sea. And then in Job 41, we have the sea, um, sea monsters destroyed or the pits of the sea monsters. So all of this is part of the biblical theology because it's part of the cultural theology. And the Bible has to address this. The Bible has to explain this to the people who are around them. And even the people of Israel have been influenced by the cultures around them so that they can understand where does God fit in this matrix of creation that they're so familiar with? Mm-hmm. How does he move beyond it? Well, you start moving people beyond by starting with what they know. You have to start with common language. You have to start with common imagery if you're going to be able to take people beyond what is already in their heads. If you just start spitting out brand new ideas without any kind of foothold or any kind of ability to grasp hold of it, then all of a sudden there's issues because you might as well be speaking a different language. 
And so this mm-hmm. is why it's so important that we look at what's going on in the culture around us to be able to address it and then take, take it further. <laughs> and so kind of like what we were talking at the beginning. So back to the Bronze Sea. Why is it in the temple? Number one, it, it totally serves a functional purpose. We were told in Chronicles very specifically, this is where the priest wash. It's for purification. So we, we understand that there is a functional side of it. Symbolically, this is a story on creation. To the Canaanites, it says God does not cower in fear against the sea or against Yom. He can contain, he can master, he can actually have the sea in his home. There's, no, there's nothing to cause him any terror about the idea of the sea invading. He just puts it in there. He already has it. So he can have windows and the sea in his house, and he can still rest, unlike their gods. Mm-hmm. Um, he employed this temple uh, that is known to be part of, or the symbol that's known to be part of temple building. Because remember, at the beginning of our story, we talked about Apsu, and we began to, and talked about how the first temples were built on Apsu's body so that there would be fresh water. So if you're coming at it from a different perspective, the idea that this is a temple, you've got to have water. So this is a clear statement. This is a place of worship. And so you've mm-hmm. got kind of these counterbalancing ideas all happening at once. And then number four, it does recall that primordial waters of creation, the waters that God split, the waters that God brooded over. And it's a reminder of his authority and power over the sea in a never the way. And because it's a symbol, this is the beautiful thing about symbols, they have a multiplicity of meanings. And the meaning is only interpreted and can only be understood when you bring the creator and the audience together. Because the audience brings their lenses, their baggage, and all the things that color how they view these symbols alongside what the creator presents. And so in this place, the creator would have been the artist Hiram. And so it becomes very effective because we can say, hey, this is a symbol of God's mastery over the sea, his lack of fear. But it's also a a symbol of the fact it is a temple. It's all coming together at once. And it's more than just a bowl of water. And this is, makes it very, very effective art because effective art is able to speak to many people, many different audiences on many different levels. And it is not something that an artist lays out all the definitions and all the ways it must be perceived with very hard, harsh lines defining going, oh, it can only mean this. Mm-hmm. When you move into that place where art, a piece, any piece of art, can only mean this. Now we're talking kitsch. Right. Now we're talking right. that beautiful lie because you aren't asking your audience to invest in it. Well, the temple itself is a place of investment. It's where humanity invests in the relationship with God. This is where God reciprocates with the, to the investments by being present. And so the, the symbol has to be completed by the audience. And this audience is been influenced by these other definitions and meanings of the sea. And to to put this here and say, we're going to change how you understand it. We're going to change how you perceive it. I mean, this is a bold, bold statement. Mm-hmm. And so I think we need to to remember that nobody came to the temple without preconceived ideas. Hiram, 
uh, the king of Tyre. He was known as a temple builder. He was known as someone who created multiple temples to multiple gods. And he understood the language of temples. And so um, when we have this, it, there's this idea that he would have been putting forth symbols that he would have understood. Well, absolutely, he would. But these are also symbols that, that everyone around him, but it's the ambiguity of the symbol that makes it crazy. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that makes it different. Sorry, not crazy. Now, the next thing that we have, and this is First uh, Kings chapter 7. This is verse 25. It says, it, and it's speaking of the Bronze Sea, stood on 12 oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, three facing east. The sea set on them, and all the rear parts were inward. Okay, so the bulls, the bulls are a major problem for the scholars because bulls are not. Bulls are they just don't a major have the problem. Do what? Bulls just tend to be a major problem. Oh, right, especially if you ever dealt with the live ones. <laughs> yeah, I've worked with enough of them to know. Yeah, yeah. well, but even in scripture, um, they aren't very highly regarded. I mean, we've had golden calf. Uh, we have the bull of Jeroboam's, which are considered to be sinful acts. We have the references to the bull of uh, Bashan in the Psalms. Um, bulls are divine creatures in so many different religions. Uh, almost throughout the world, you find bulls as being signs of power and authority. Uh, Ea and his cor- uh, consort, they both have divine bulls. Marduk has a, a bull symbol as one of his depictions. Apis, Apis or Apis, um, Baal Hadad. Um, I could make a huge list of just different deities who have bull symbols. Um, but this doesn't mean that all bull symbols are negative according to the Bible. And this is the reason why there's such a conflict, because they are one of the prescribed uh, animals for sacrifice to God. They're all throughout Leviticus on how to do this correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hannah, we opened up Samuel with Hannah talking, uh, taking the bulls to be sacrificed when she dedicated Samuel. Um, bulls are used in consecrating the priest for service. David sacrificed a fatted ox or bull every six steps when he brought the ark into Jerusalem. Uh, you know, these are just a few of examples of why bulls aren't always negative. And of course, since there are 12, we got so many scholars who want to say, oh, this is astrological. Okay. Why? You know, it's a bull. We have one astrological symbol with a bull. We don't have 12. Right. Well, yeah. And also, I would just assume it was for the 12 tribes of Israel. There you go. There you go. Why not? I mean, this is like, it's a temple in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. It is being built for the Israelite God. Why don't we go with what's the closest to the people? Now, yes, we have these outside influences. Absolutely. But at the same time, the idea is that we subvert the outside symbols. We may redefine them so that they say something new. They say something important and significant about the God of Israel. And so the God of Israel has 12 tribes. These 12 tribes, they, they were created for a purpose. They, they have meaning. They have function. And the bulls help symbolize that. And so um, 
the the critics and can't see this. They they want to go back to the idea that the bulls are in honor of El or Baal's father, and they're evidence of of Hiram's influence and the ability to insert his pagan theology into the temple. If you believe that, you're going to have issues when we move forward. And God absolutely approves, accepts, and and applauds basically Solomon's efforts in building this temple. So you, you can't read the entire passage in the book of Kings and come away with the idea that somehow Hiram corrupted the temple. That That's an issue. Um, bulls were associated with several things. One of them, uh, the moon, uh, storms. They're associated with fertility. Uh, there wasn't always a very clear delineation between uh, storms and fertility. Uh, I read several articles spent way too much time reading articles on whether or not Baal was a fertility god or he was a storm god. And so I, it, it gets crazy. Now, the, the thing is, I think that people are trying to put too fine of a point on it. I think that they were trying to, to make too big of a, a distinction between storms and fertility because in the ancient Near East, you needed storms in order to have crops and crops mm. equal fertility. So. Um, you know, this is what scholars do when they have too much time on their, um, on their hands. Uh, however, because Baal is associated with Asherah, which we've talked about Asherah before on previous episodes, and she was a fertility goddess. She was always, almost always uh, worshipped with um, ritualized sex. And this was portrayed the sexual encounters that she and Baal had, which ensured the fertility, ensured the, sta- uh, the, the storms. Um, so there is that aspect within the Baal uh, myths. And I should note that Asherah actually started out as El's, El's uh, consort, and somehow Baal displaces him. It, 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 it's, you know, whenever you get into these ancient myths, they're, they're all incestuous. So well, just I mean, accept it, that. <laughs> that. That would actually, okay, so that's actually kind of something that just kind of occurred to me, and I don't know if there's anything to this. Like I said, I just had this thought two seconds ago. So, um, the, it, you see that in, uh, when David's sons try to displace him. So, Mm -hmm. um, if this was like a common, uh, myth around the time of, of ancient Judaism, could it be, uh, could that be kind of an indicator that the, uh, the sons of David were so evil that they were imitating the foreign gods? Very much. I mean, I think you can see that there's at least the influence, whether there's they're actively worshiping or not. There's at least the influence of these other societies on their perceptions of what's right and wrong. And I, I think we often forget society has a huge influence on the way people perceive things. Mm-hmm. And so, um, see our earlier conversation. Uh, right. Right. Uh, uh, Sorry, I had something that would have taken us completely off track. I'm going to like stop that thought. But the reason why these bulls are important to the conversation and why understanding this about Baal and Asherah is important to this is the Bible puts a phrase in here that it, it's almost easy to overlook because we think it's a stylistic description, but it actually is another statement because this is what symbols do. In their style, in their form, they make statements. And this statement that that is made is their inward parts were turned. Uh, their um, oh, I their completely inward, lost it. Their their uh, 
hind parts were turned inward. Their hind inward. parts were turned inward. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, their rear parts. Um, so if you're talking about fertility, that's not the part you hide. This is, again, exactly the opposite of what you would expect to see of a bull that was being portray meant to portray a fertility god or a fertility goddess's consort. Yeah, which is and why the priests wear special underwear. Exactly, exactly. Everything, what you look at, um, the, the, the structure of the temple, you look at the, the priest's outfits, it, it is this denial of fertility through ritualized sex. And it, it's not about just these huge orgies and where people just, well, you know, not, engage. Yeah, and it's, not a, it's not a denial of fertility. It's a denial that ritualized sex brings fertility. Right. That's the... Right. I wanted to... uh, yeah, because fertility is part of the promise, absolutely, to, to the Israelites when they moved into Canaan. That, that's part of, I mean, go back to Abraham and your, your, your uh, children will be like the sands of the sea and like the stars of the heavens. Fertility is definitely part of that, but it's not in, in, in this hedonistic way where everybody just does what feels good. It's within covenant relationships. That's the difference. It, it's not sex is bad either, which is snuck into the messaging of the Bible somehow uh, by people who don't know how to read it. It's the idea that sex and intimacy occur within the covenant relationship. And so I'm say the, the people who read that sex is bad into the Bible also don't know a lot about sex, probably, too. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to let that one just float out there. No more comment. So obviously these weren't crafted to honor Baal. <laughs> what, that's on. what you're trying to uh, say. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but then also, if you notice the, the bull support, the, the symbol. OK, let's look at it this way. The symbol of Baal, the bull is supporting the sea. It's not dominating. It's not conquering. It, it's in the exact opposite place you would expect it to see if it actually was a symbol for Baal. Yeah, it's, it's in the servant's the sea, role. Exactly. Exactly. So the, the, the symbols have been literally flipped. They've been turned backwards, upside down, and, and they can say something completely different than what you would hear if you were listening to the Baal cycles in other cultures. So this is, this is not a, a monument to Baal. And we should also remember that the sea represents more than just chaos and destruction. Mm -hmm. The sea represents the potential for life. The sea represents mobility, the ability to travel, uh, fruitfulness, there's provision, there's all sorts of good things that come out of the sea. And because every symbol holds both positive and negative connotations, uh, the symbol in and of itself is neither good nor evil. What, what it does, it encompasses both and is ultimately redefined by the artist. And it's what the artist puts in conjunction with the symbol or how they place the symbol that gives the symbol meaning that can be reinterpreted through the lens of the audience. It's a complex relational event. It's not static. It's not just set in stone. This is how it has to be, even though it may be created out of stone. So um, <clears throat> the, the symbol of the sea is redefined when you have these bulls, these 12 bulls operating as the, the symbols for the, the tribes of Israel, because we have to remember that the tribes of Israel, what, what was Israel created for? It's to bless the earth. 
that Israel is supposed to take this message, this revelation of God that was given to Abraham, Moses, and they were supposed to take it out into the world so that the world could return to the one true God. This is the purpose. It's not so that they can keep it hidden within the, um, within the temple or even to themselves. So Isaiah 2, um, <clears throat> verses Excuse me. Verses one and two says it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, this is Zion, this is where the temple is, shall be established as the highest mountain. It shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Notice that word there. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his path. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So these verses from Isaiah speak about the significance of the temple, of Zion, it, the, the placement being where people would arrive to seek God and where they can experience God. They can understand his blessings. They can experience peace and prosperity. All of these things that other nations promised and other religions promised, but were only able to, to quote unquote, deliver on if there is a, this, these rituals that may or may not work and where God says, no, this is how things work. This is, this is the system I've set in place. Now there's passages in Psalms and Isaiah um, that portray the temple as the foundation of God's revelation to the nations. Isaiah 60 speaks of the future glory of Israel in which all the nations of the world come to bless Israel with goods and services. And verse five says, the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you and the wealth of the nations shall come to you. Isaiah 48, um, God laments Israel's disobedience, and he says that had they listened to his commandments, and this is verse 18, it says, your peace would have been like a river, your righteousness like the waves of a sea. And if you took the time to read the entire chapter, which I'm not, you're going to see that there's so many references back to creation, back to Genesis, where we have the same ideologies being reaffirmed, both in creation, the temple, and now again in Isaiah. And mm -hmm. so this idea of being able to redeem, to bring purpose, bring function from what had seemed like chaos over and over again, this is restated so many ways in the Bible, whether it's the, in the earth we live in, in the temple that was created, or in God's directly speaking it out. So for Israel, the sea is some, not something to fear. Why? Because one, their God does not fear it. Two, it's because it's a means that God has used to bless them. And it is a symbol of God's care and provision for the nation. And probably we see this most clearly in the, the passing through the Red Sea. And when we realize that when the sea parted for them, that this is a foundational moment within their, um, within their history. Because um, we're, well, let me come back to that because I, I can, I did go off on a whole tangent with this. But I want to come back to that after I make another mention of the sands of the sea. The sea is also, the sands also represent God's blessing because of the prosperity. We talked about that. And um, I evidently kind of got caught up in this because I repeated myself several times in my notes. So we're going to skip a good chunk of them. But what I want to talk about the Red Sea, because... This is a birth moment. This is a creation moment. And I found this really interesting article by Dr. Orit Avnery. 
the title of it is Pesach is literally the story of a people's birth. And she makes this um, really great analogy where Exodus opens with the birth. Obviously, we know Moses' story. He's born. He's put in the basket. Pharaoh's uh, daughter reclaims him. So it's a rebirth. And then I just loved this this paragraph that she wrote because it's so, it's a great paragraph. Now, she uses the female pronouns for God, and I'm going to read it as she wrote it. Don't get upset with that. God transcends and encompasses both genders. I don't think it's something we need to be mad about, but I understand why she did it here specifically. Um, it reads, enter the most powerful midwife imaginable, God Almighty herself. She induces Egypt to give birth. The entire story is described in this manner. We simply need to listen to the birth mother's screams in the delivery room. We hear the screams throughout the plagues as they become increasingly intensive. The sea will split in two and the children of Israel will pass through the waters to dry land through the birth canal that has opened for them. At the end of the birth canal, will be wait who will be waiting for them? The midwife God, ready to grasp them and teach them to walk. This, this idea of the Red Sea parting being a birth moment is very common in Jewish theology. Mm-hmm. This is a, a huge part of how they view this event. Uh, event. Uh, I want to read another description. This is another writer, Alana Padres. This is from her auto, uh, um, bar, sorry, article, The Biography of Ancient Israel. It says the Israelites are delivered collectively out of the womb of Egypt, national birth, much like individual births, and all the more so in ancient times, take place on that delicate border between life and death. It involves the transformation of blood from signifiers of death to a signifier of life. It also involves the successful opening of the womb, the prevention of the wombs turning into a tomb. God performs a variety of wonders in Egypt, but the parting of the Red Sea seems to surpass them all. It marks the nation's first breath out in the open air and serves as a distinct reminder of the miraculous character of the birth. Where there was nothing, a living creature emerges all of a sudden. So the sea is a powerful symbol. Not only is creation itself birthed out of these primordial waters that were present before God ever spoke a word in Genesis 1, it's also the means through which Israel as a nation is birthed. They pass through this water. And so when they would enter into the temple, not only are they passing by this bronze sea to make their sacrifices, the priests are passing through the waters on their behalf to make the sacrifices. So you see this imagery replayed over and over again. And it's in this collective remembrance of God's deliverance that the symbol really takes on a new meaning. Again, not a fear, not of the need to conquer, but where the things that terrified other natures were a source of comfort and a source of security for this nation because they're witness to God's greatness and care. And it's why Isaiah can make these confident claims in chapter uh, 43. Again, not going to read the whole uh, chapter. And that chapter um, specifically deals with the exile of Babylon, but it points us back to two events. It points us back to Exodus and it points us back to the creation. Why? Because they're tied together so intensely Mm -hmm. and you can be faithful in the exile in in Babylon. You can live without fear during the exile of Babylon because God has already proven himself to be faithful in that time of exile in Egypt. Mm. And so... The, the symbol becomes so much more than just this bronze bowl of water. You mean we can, we can have peace and hope 
and live with joy and delight in God, regardless of our political circumstances? What a crazy concept. It's, you know, you would think that the Bible would address that occasionally if it was important. Uh, that was sarcasm for those who might have missed it. Uh, yeah, I mean, and we see that throughout the Bible. No matter what the political structure, no matter whose leadership you're under, if you're truly focusing on God and you are being submissive to him, you're honoring him, he's going to take care of you because he wins. That's just the way it is. He gets his way. And, and you know, okay, so did not mean to go here, but let's, let's, let's open this up just a little bit. Because there's a lot of talk about women being submissive to their husbands. And if they will just trust in Jesus, that everything will work out because they just need to have more faith in Jesus. Why does that message flip the second we're talking about presidents? Why right. does that, you know, it, no. Why should women be the only ones called to be faithful and have hope and have, you know, this fear of God in their situations that brings life where Men don't have to do that if we're talking about a political leader. Uh, that's ridiculous. You've got to be consistent. God is consistent. I do not find any shadow of turning in him. Whenever I look at the scripture over and over again, I hear him saying, hey, I'm still in charge. I don't care who looks, seems to be standing between you and me. I'm the one who's got this, and you need to keep your eyes fixed on me. It's that simple. And that's not a male or female message. That is a universal message. And until mm -hmm. we can figure that out and start living like that in all areas of our life, we just need to shut up. So, I mean, uh, I might need to get some more sleep. Um, <laughs> I feel like the show's been getting better, actually, the less we sleep. It's uh, a little I've more got interesting opinions, to me anyway. guys. Do what? <laughs> What did you say? I missed it. <laughs> oh, uh, I, we got lost signal. I said, I think it's, it's been more interesting to me anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I totally agree with you on that, with just the idea that anytime, anytime there's, in America, anytime the political party changes, you know, whoever's in president, whether it's an R or a D, the church mm -hmm. loses their mind. And right. I'm like, guys, have you not caught on to the pattern yet? <laughs> I mean, it's, um, yeah. No two wings human of a leader earth. is, um. <laughs> well, no human leader is going to save us. But here's the beauty. Because no human leader can save us, no human leader can actually condemn us either. And oh, yeah. so, you know, if we can things get hard? Can there be consequences? Can there be reality of situations that are difficult to deal with because of politics? Absolutely. I'm not going to deny that. That would be stupid. But we have to be eternally minded and we mm -hmm. have to stop focusing so much on, oh, what's going on in politics that we forget that we have a responsibility in the life around us and to the people who are near us, to our neighbors, to our family members. And I think a lot of times we hide in politics so we don't have to deal with the, the real life obligations we have as believers in the day-to-day. -day. And so, um, you know, if, if you're more worried about what Congress is doing than you're worried about how well your child is doing, you've got issues. Mm -hmm. it, it's just that simple. Um, because you have an obligation to that child to do the best. Or you, we could make a million different uh, analogies, but uh, not to get too political. But anyway, the, the other thing that we do need to point out about the Bulls is because they face the four directions. When we talk in Isaiah 43, there's this imagery of everyone, all the nations from the four corners of the earth returning mm -hmm. to worship God at this holy mountain. And I think that's where 
this is a joyful symbol. This is a symbol of now the the oceans are going to serve God in a completely different way because they're going to be they're going to be the highways by which people travel on. For them, this was the fastest mode of transportation. Mm-hmm. And this is how the temple itself actually got built was because they floated the logs down on water through the sea, rafts and barges. And so it, we have this beautiful imagery that's not just happening in the final form or the final symbol of the temple. It's in the construction of the temple itself. And so there's so much more here than it's a bronze bowl. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's where we need to get excited because what what I was so frustrated with as I studied through this, the Christian commentators and commentaries were so sparse. There was just like, there's a bronze bowl. It was this big. Yet, no, guys, this is this is significant. It's not put in there because God, you know, hired the latest decorator, and this was what was trendy that year. This is not agreeable gray. Yeah. This is something amazing. So God I have wanted opinions on agreeable gray. Uh, mm. yeah. <laughs> anyway, verses 25 through 35. I'm not going to read these verses. We're still in 1 Kings chapter 7 here, but it describes 10 stands. It goes into great amount of detail. Uh, again, they're made of bronze. Uh, they have chariot-type wheels. They have carvings with wreaths, lions, ox, uh, cherubim, crowns, palm trees, all of these things, all of these symbols that we've talked about before. They're symbols of the garden. They're symbols of, of Exodus, of that passing through the Red Sea. It's all right there. We have symbols of, with the chariot wheels, we're talking about the Merkavot, the, the chariot symbolism of Ezekiel, where he sees God riding on the chariot. Um, so we have, again, all these ideas brought together. And on these 10 stands were 10 lavers or 10 basins. And so obviously they're mobile. They hold a lot of water. They actually hold around 230 gallons of water. They're used for washing the sacrifices, used for washing the, the priest. Now, washing is different than purification. It's different than ritual immersion. Ritual immersion is not to physically clean you up. It's a spiritual, symbolic act. But the idea of actually washing, that's not going to happen in that giant, huge bowl that has, you know, all these thousands of gallons of water. This is going to happen in something that's much more manageable, something that's portable, something that can be cleaned out uh, more easily and more often. And I think we need to remember that if you take apart and push aside all of the religious significance of the temple, we're talking about a slaughterhouse. We're talking about a place where thousands and thousands of animals were killed every single day. The Talmud puts the number at 1.2 million animals killed there daily. Now, that's probably hyperbole. Um, It is not probably not an accurate representation, but it does serve to prove the point or emphasize the point. This is a place of death. Mm-hmm. But to give a little bit of context, because when you start thinking about killing animals, which you and I, we've been involved in, we grew up on a farm, we butchered our own cow, slaughtered our own hogs, clean, you know, dress chickens, clean fish, all that stuff. We're, we're familiar with it, but a lot of people aren't. So I just did a little math, and I know that's scary, but let's take a very 
modest number in comparison. Let's take 10,000. Let's say that there's 10,000 animals killed because this is functioning as the sacrificial center for the entire nation. So just 10,000 animals killed a day. And for convenience sake, we're going to say they're all sheep. We're going to say they're yearling sheep or eight to nine month old sheep, about 140 pounds. They've got roughly six and a half pints of blood in each sheep. So at 10,000 of those sheep being killed a day, that's 8,125 gallons of blood. Then if you think about a 53 foot long tanker truck, which we're all familiar with, we know what that looks like. That holds between 5,500 and 9,000 gallons of blood. So the, a tanker truck would be maxed out pretty much with the blood of 10,000 sheep being slaughtered in the temple a day. That's a lot of blood. And we aren't even talking about the urine and the feces that would have come along when you start bringing live animals to be killed in this area. You need a lot of water to deal with this kind of mess. And there was a lot of speculation on how this water was gotten in and out and how it was used. Uh, there's one that actually the, the, a nearby stream would have been just opened up and allowed to flow straight through across the floor of the temple every night to clear out everything. And then it would have flowed down to Kidron. Um, there's been some issues with that because there's not a clearly discernible water source near uh, where the temple would, was mm -hmm. built. That was in 2000, until 2012, and we did find the Israel Antiquities um, Authority. They reported that they found a pool near the Temple Mount that held roughly 66,000 gallons of water, and it does date to the right time period, back to the first Temple time era. And it's believed to be the primary source of water for Solomon's Temple, and it's likely uh, this is where the water for those 10 basins would have been collected and would have been brought into the temple. We still don't know the full mechanics of how that was done, but it does bring us a little closer to a workable solution. Well, I mean, uh, if you, if so you, if you think of the entire tribe of Judah being in the service of the temple, I mean, it is highly likely that uh, it could have been carried or brought on wagons. Oh, absolutely. I it could have been brought on wagons. We, we have. Um, we have different uh, tribes and different people who were actually pressed into service for the sake of serving the temple, who weren't allowed to take care of the ritual stuff, but Did were I say able Judah? to. I meant Levi. Yeah, you said Judah, but I mean uh, you, the Levites uh, yeah. would have been. But then also, uh, who were those people? Um, I totally forgot the name. Yes, yeah, but anyway, wrong. I I said the wrong tribe. I knew which one I meant in my head. Uh. Yeah. That's that's just annoying. But it's a, yeah, I know we, we mentioned them uh, a few episodes ago who were pressed into service, um, but I can't the think Gibeonites. of that, the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites. Yeah. So yeah, the Gibeonites would have been there. They but they yeah they wouldn't have been able to like offer sacrifices. But this is the kind of work that would have had to have been done. And I think we mm -hmm. often forget. I know we forget because we forget that churches like church buildings actually required to be cl uh, cleaned on a regular basis and we don't even offer sacrifices <laughs> i mean right. people forget right. that churches have janitorial staff to come in and clean this stuff uh, right or, you yeah. know people right. volunteer yeah and, and as far as like moving all that water if there was a source within even not quite reasonable distance um we often uh we're in our modern mindset we forget what you can do when you have a whole bunch of people working on the same job. Uh, 
Right. It, well, it really we, is quite amazing what you could accomplish. Well, and you know, we we know that aqueduct uh, technology has been around. Everybody's familiar with the Romans, and but mm-hmm. that predated the Romans by a long time. The Romans just probably made the most significant use of it. So, yeah, I, the fact that there is water uh, that could be used is really big, but the fact that it's also not built directly on water, mm-hmm. again, mm-hmm. subverts that symbol of Apsu. So we have water, but again, it's water that's con- water in the temple, but it's contained. It's water that has been mastered, and it has come under the authority of human, you know, the imagers of God, mm-hmm. um, under their authority to, to serve a purpose. So I, I think we, we forget that there is this, um, everything about the temple has symbolism. And the symbolism isn't just about being pretty, although being pretty is part of it. Uh, I guess we'll stop there because it looks like we're right at an hour. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, th- there's so much more. So we're still, we're going to be in chapter seven for a little bit longer. I think I've got, um, yeah, I've got several pages of notes here. We're, we're up to 86 pages of notes, and we're on page 69. So, yeah, we still have some more stuff to talk about. And But it, this is the stuff that I enjoy because there's not a lot of stuff written about it in the Christian commentaries. And that's what, whenever I see that lack of information mm-hmm. in, in the regular commentaries, I'm like, what are they missing? Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. when I wind up going back to Jewish commentaries, looking at... Uh, uh, concurrent ideologies and, and cultural influences. And, you know, and, and I could be wrong and I will be completely honest with, this is what I'm seeing. If I'm wrong, then somebody just needs to bring me the information and I, I'm willing to say, Hey, I'm off. But I, I think there's enough people who are leaning this way. I'm probably just putting it, you know, saying it a little louder with a little bolder words than you would find in most academic circles. So, yeah. Well, and also more, more, accessible language i hope so. <laughs> we hope <laughs> so anyway well that being said everyone thanks for joining us um hopefully you enjoyed the, the this week's installment um if you want to be part of the conversation hit us up on raven creek sc uh on the social media ravencreeksc.com is the website and we will see you next time thanks bye bye Oddities Podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.